Thank you, Greg and worship team, for uh, serving under dire circumstance without computer and technology. I know it's hard to uh, put time and effort into planning and preparing and then not have it all work out, but isn't that partly the story of our lives, too? We have plans and hope that it works out, but it doesn't always, and uh, God is good, and He has grace for those times. Uh, My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome if you're visiting with us. We hope you hang out after the service is over a bit and let us get to know you. Uh, We are going to be worshiping more after the message as well with music and Uh, communion, and so the day is uh, just getting started. It's good to be together. Yesterday, for those of you who were able to join us at the Veritas workshop, the first workshop on our Vitality Pathway, what a great day to come together in unity to uh, begin to tell the truth about congregational vitality, about what does it mean for us to be growing and healthy and missional as a church. That's what Veritas was really all about. Veritas is simply the Latin word for truth. And we had a great time being able to talk with one another. And uh, we're going to be capturing some of the thoughts from these workshops and being able to share it with you for those of you who weren't able to be there and to remind us as a congregation of the conversation we're having. Because ultimately, that is our goal, is to be having a conversation together in the presence of God and ultimately a conversation with God about who we are and where God is calling us forward and how we can be more healthy and missional as a church. And by healthy, we mean pursuing Christ. And by missional, we mean pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. Uh, As we turn to God's word this morning and uh, have some time to talk further a little bit about Veritas yesterday and uh, the chapter of Acts in our series on a story of faith this morning, would you pray with me and ask God to bless this time of looking into his word? God, we do thank you that you are a God who is a storyteller, and that you've told us the story of grace that overcomes our sin. You've told us the story of how your love wins. And even in our own uh, broken lives and mistakes that we make and technology that doesn't work, we know, God, that your goodness is available to us. And so we ask that your spirit would be with us and that you would speak to us through your word about that word that each of us need to hear this morning as as a special word from you to remind us who we are and that we are invited to have our story become your story. Amen. Our story as a church, one of the things we were reminded of yesterday with Don Robinson, who is our uh, associate superintendent for the Pacific Northwest Conference and uh, our regional director for congregational vitality, is that every church and ministry uh, goes through life cycles, that there are seasons of life and ministry, and they kind of depict that by the uh, traditional bell curve. You've probably seen that where you kind of have a launching point, and then there's growth, and then at some point there's always a a decline, and and ultimately perhaps even a death. And so you have, you know, birth, uh, growth, up here they had maturity, uh, and then decline, and ultimately, in some cases, a death. And we heard about how the statistics in our culture today are, are really dire, and that especially in the United States and in the Western world, 
Thousands of churches are closing every year. They've gone through a season of life and ministry and growth, and and they've been in a season of decline, and ultimately they find out they don't have the capacity and the resources to keep doing the ministry that God has called them to do, and uh, they cannot pursue the mission, and so they decide to close their doors. And, and, And we don't want that to be happening to us, and we're not really in a fearful place as a church. In fact, one of the things that we celebrated a lot yesterday is we believe we have a healthy church, and we are growing again, and there are new people coming, and we're excited about the possibilities that God has for us. But one of the things that they reminded us is that every ministry in life goes through this process, and what, what prevents us from moving towards decline and ultimately death is that at some point it, on this uh, curve somewhere, there needs to come a, a point of innovation, Something new needs to be inserted into the mix, a a new catalyst, a a new inspiration, something that that calls us forward to to understand that what we've been in the past won't get us to where we need to be in the future. And I would suggest that this is true for each of us individually as well, not just for organizations, but as individuals, we can go through life relying on the spiritual experiences we've had from our childhood or from a camping experience or or in our teenage or college years, and, and we move on in to life and marriage and career, and we, we have this deep faith from these experiences we've had with God, but, but if we're not finding those new places of inspiration and connection with God that spark us to begin growing again and to begin pursuing new things in our life with God, we can also begin to experience a sense of spiritual decline in our lives and maybe even a spiritual death for people who just maybe fall away from God completely, and that's, that's not something we want to see happen for anybody. So in order to sustain life as a, as a church and as Christians and, and to have vitality in our lives, we need to be uh, looking for these times of innovation that will revitalize us and, and bring us to a, a new sense of invigoration and growth. Now, it was also important that we mentioned yesterday that innovation isn't always something that's completely brand new. In fact, most innovations are based on something that already exists that gets reimagined and and reused in a new way. And we use the example of, of the phone, right? I, I've left my cell phone down in the pew, but I used my phone yesterday as the illustration. In fact, I'm just going to grab it because it's such a great visual, right? I mean... Who'd ever thunk that a phone would look like this? You know, I'm, I'm getting on in years, but I'm not that old. And not, but I remember in my childhood, you know, a phone had a thing that went on the ear and one that went on the mouth and a thing you held your hand on here. A phone is something completely different that we never could have imagined 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But now, because of advances in technology and new ideas that people have brought, our phones can be so much more than just a a, a communication device. I mean, uh, many of us have our Bibles on our phone and carry it around with us in our pocket. Many of us are, are texting and we're staying connected with loved ones and friends and family through, uh, through text and not just voice. The phone has become an innovative piece of our lives. The challenge with innovation, though, that we learn from people who study these things and do leadership development is that a lot of us, while we value the idea of innovation, don't really understand all the key pieces that go into what innovation is really all about. The first piece or ingredient that you need in innovation is imagination. And what a lot of people are recognizing is that when churches 
cross over this threshold and they move towards decline is many of them lose the imagination to imagine a different possible future. Or the way I like to say it is we lose the ability to dream big dreams with God. We somehow get locked into this mindset that we have to do it the way we've always done it. And if anything new comes along that isn't the way we've done it before, that that's risky and that's bad. But, but if we don't allow ourselves to imagine a different possible future, then we can't allow the Spirit of God to inspire us to do new things in new ways. And it might be something that we've already done before, but we need to reinvigorate it. We need to make it accessible for a new generation in a new way. It doesn't mean we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater and do something completely different. But we have to bring our imaginations to play. And this is where all of our creative people and our dreamers are really important. Those who have vision for the future, who come and bring their voices to say, we believe God is calling us to do big things again. And imagination really does lead us to big dreams. And without dreams, without vision, the Bible says, the people perish, right? The challenge with dreams is what? If you don't implement them and make them become a reality, they're just pipe dreams. They're pie in the sky. And so often we will experience all these ideas that we have, but they never come to fruition. And it becomes that one more thing. It's like, oh yeah, we thought about that before and that was a great idea, but we, it never really went anywhere. And so the second ingredient that is really important for innovation is implementation. And that's where our doers, our, our task-oriented people are really important to come alongside of our visionaries and our dreamers and say, you know, that all sounds good, but, but here's how you really need to put something in a place to make it work. You have to have a plan and you have to follow through on that. It has to be something that is sustainable for a long time. And so we, we begin to develop uh, strategies and we put programs in place and programs are good because it helps us to organize our dreams and, and begin to accomplish the kinds of things that we believe God is calling us to do. But the risk with programs is that it becomes an end in itself. So we develop a new ministry and we have a program and we get a lot of people who come and attend a program and we say, great job, the, the program was really successful because we had a lot of people involved, but we're missing the third ingredient, which is ultimately the question of what is the, the goal for all of this? What are the results that we're really looking for? And that's where they say that most churches miss the final ingredient, which is integration, that the changes and the new experiences need to become a part of the lifestyle of the people. When it becomes a part of the way we do things around here and we all are participating in it because that's just who we are and that's what we do, now you've achieved a true innovation because it's become a part of the life of the people in the congregation. And I would like to suggest that in our language that we've been using where we're talking about discipleship and we've been saying things like discipleship isn't one of the things that we do, it's the one thing that we do, that is a way of us trying to say we need to move through this process of reimagining a different possible future, implementing strategies and programs that will engage people in the ministries of our church, but ultimately with the hope that we experience a life transformation and we begin to live differently with God in a way that impacts not only our lives, but the culture around us. Now, if you want to uh, pull out your uh, paper flat screen in the pew in front of you, or maybe if you have your Bible on your phone, you could uh, pull out your own screen since we don't have one for you today. We're going to be looking in Acts chapter 6 as we continue the story of faith and looking at the early church as well, and we're going to see a, a point of innovation in the life of the church as they were pursuing the mission of God together. 
We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6 in verses 1 through 7. The gospel writer, Luke, writes in verse 1, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we and will give our attention to the prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, I'm not going to get these names pronounced right, but that's okay, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Do you see the innovation that's going on here? You see, in Acts, we see a change that's happening in the life of the church. The church is being successful. It's growing. The number of people who are coming to faith is increasing, and that's worth celebrating. But what happened is with growth became new challenges. The needs of the community began to outstretch the the leader's capacity to meet all those needs, and people began to feel disgruntled and left out and that they weren't getting all of their needs met. And so they began to complain to the leaders saying, whoa, you know, something's not okay here. And so they came together and they said, gosh, you know, this isn't working the way it was before. We need to put our heads together and begin to reimagine how we're doing what we're doing and implement some new plans and programs so that we can continue to experience this lifestyle that Jesus has called us to live out as a community of faith. And the thing that I think is most important for us to recognize right up front here is that the challenge and the reason to pursue change was not because it was the latest church growth trend. It wasn't because it was the, the most fashionable thing to do in Jerusalem at the time. It wasn't in order to try and get more people to just come and celebrate, you know, what they were doing on Sunday morning, or maybe they were meeting on Saturday morning still at the time. The innovation was driven by the mission of Jesus Christ to minister to the needs of people in their daily lives. And when they found that they weren't able to meet the needs of the people, it forced them to go back and reevaluate how they were doing, what they were doing, to make a change in order to be more effective in the mission that God had called them to do. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that that should always be our motivation to looking at who we are and what we're doing, and that's the whole point of Veritas and this vitality process is to be honest with ourselves with what are we doing that's working, what's not working, and how do we begin to reimagine ways of doing ministry that are going to achieve the kinds of results that we believe God is calling us to achieve in the lives of people who are in desperate need of help and hope. So if you think about where imagination comes into this experience in the early church, I mean, there was no precedent for appointing deacons. This was not something that was a standard practice that they fell back on. They saw the need and they brought the congregation together and they said, what are we going to do? They had a congregational meeting and said, we have a problem. Let's put our heads together and figure out how do we solve this problem? 
And there were competing needs that the apostles felt. They were tasked with teaching the word. And there was these needs of distributing food among the community. And they realized that they didn't have the capacity to do both. And if they gave up what they were doing in teaching the word to do the other, that the needs of both might be sacrificed. And so it led them to use their imagination to come up with a whole new approach to doing ministry together as a community. Now, what we see, again, is that this innovation wasn't wholly new and just out of the blue. What happened is that we can look back and understand that in the synagogue, there was this tradition of meeting the needs of people who were orphans and widows and in need of food, that the synagogue, which was a part of the center of the community, every week they went around and they gathered food from the house. They went house to house and they had people bring it to the synagogue. And at the end of the day on Friday, they would distribute the food to anyone who had a need. So there was this precedent for gathering food from the community and uh, providing it for people who could not support themselves. At the end of the day, when all the food was distributed, those who had need uh, were either given enough to get by for the day or a couple days, or for those who were in chronic need, were actually given large supplies of food that would allow them to have about two meals a day for up to two weeks. And so there was this tradition and this strategy for how to meet the needs of people who were hungry and in need of food. And it was really clear that the Christian church had taken over this custom from the synagogue. But in the early church, we began to recognize that there were two different kinds of Jews who were existing in the same community. The passage tells us there were uh, Hebraic Jews who were from Jerusalem, who probably spoke the uh, ancient uh, language of Aramaic, which was the Jewish language that Jesus spoke. But then there were also what they call Hellenistic Jews who didn't grow up in Jerusalem. They had moved away and uh, had come back either for a, a feast or a pilgrimage, or, or, or maybe they uh, often when the, uh, the patriarch of the family died, they would bring his body back to be buried in Jerusalem. And so the wife and the, the children would be left there in Jerusalem, and maybe the, the widows, and they couldn't support themselves. And so you have this growing population of people who didn't grow up in Jerusalem. They didn't speak Aramaic. They actually spoke Greek because that was like English is, was in that day, right? It's kind of the, the most common language in the known world. And so you begin to have this kind of internal sense of disparity between those who were the original Hebrew Jews and those who came from, you know, the outer regions. Now, can you imagine any circumstances where that might happen in the church today? I mean, one of the things that was a real challenge, I think, for us yesterday as we went talked about the, the statistics and the patterns in churches is that most churches that have existed for any longer period of time really believe that they are a warm and friendly church. I mean, that is one of the, one of the most common responses that you will get from most uh, conservative um, evangelical churches, you know, there's, there's two responses. Number one is you'll get, we are a warm and friendly church, and that we are, are Bible-based and Christ-centered. And those are really good things, but most of the people who respond that way are people who have been in the church for a long time, and they're a part of the community. If you start to talk honestly with the people who are newer to the community, what you'll find is many more stories of people who've struggled to, to break into relationships. People who've come and they, they feel the warmth of the church, but then they are confused as to why they're not able to connect in deeper and more significant ways, because those who are already here just don't even recognize how 
the relationships that we already have have become somewhat closed and we're not even paying attention to the needs of those around us. And so in our day, we can have people whose spiritual needs and relational needs are going unmet and we're not even aware of it. We can have the same kind of dichotomy in churches. The other thing that I think we can see from this passage is if we're putting all of the responsibility for meeting the needs of people on just a few people, then it's, we will reach the point where our capacity to meet all of the needs that are in our church become limited, and we sacrifice the quality and the effectiveness of our ministry in many ways. We've heard for years the whole you know, 80-20 principle, right? You know, 20% of the people do 80% of the work and all of that. I don't know if those statistics are completely accurate, but the same idea holds true here in Acts 6, 1 through 7, where we see the needs of the community and the leaders saying, you know what, we don't have the capacity capacity to do all of this, we're going to need help. And the only way that we can do that is come to the community and say, who among us is willing and capable to step up and take some responsibility to take on some of the ministry? And I've been saying this for a while with our staff and with some of our leaders behind the scenes. I think one of the the challenges to our church and to the church in the United States is too often we view ministry as something that paid professionals do and we hire staff to do ministry. And then we come and yeah, we'll volunteer to help staff do ministry, but we're not really the ministers. That's what we pay them to do. And so too often, we don't have our people in the church. You guys don't feel like you are fully valued and invested as responsible ministers of the gospel. You may come and volunteer, but it's the very few people who really see themselves invested as responsible leaders who are responsible for an entire ministry area, like meeting the needs of the food distribution for widows. But that's what we see going on here is early on, the apostles didn't go, oh, well, we're the ones with Jesus, and so we need to be responsible for managing all of the ministries of the church. And you guys can help, but we need to be the ones who kind of make the plan and organize it. That's not what we saw here. In fact, they said, you know what? We feel God has really called us to focus on the ministry of the word, and we don't have time to do all these other things. So what we're going to do is we're going to find qualified spiritual people, and we're going to give them the responsibility to do it. And so we see a delegation happening and a sharing of responsibility with the leaders and the the members of the congregation, which becomes a model for the lifestyle of what the Christian church really became. The apostles called the congregational meeting to talk about roles and responsibilities in the church, and they said there are different needs, and we're all going to work to help. And it's hard not to read also into this text some condescension in the voices of the apostles, though, right? well, we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the word. We don't have time to wait tables. But if you read some of the commentaries and what the scholars suggest is that our own English translations have kind of muddied the waters here and we miss the larger point that the language really points to is that the text really doesn't suggest that there's a difference in value between ministry of the word and a ministry of waiting tables. The word that is used, diakonia, which means service or ministry, is actually used for both. There isn't a difference in the language if you go back to the original Greek text. The apostles served the word, and those who served tables were also doing this diakonia, which is a Greek word for uh, ministry and service, which is where we get our word deacon from, a 
person who does diakonia, who serves someone else, is a deacon, is a servant. And our English translations have actually used many different words to translate this one word, which I would suggest has served to mask the universality of it throughout Scripture and not just in this passage. It's used as an action verb to diaconize. It's used to refer to an office or function within the organization of the church, a a diaconate. And it's also a personal subject, as we just said, a deacon. And the verb form of diaconia is the Greek word that the Bible uses to describe the life and the ministry of the person that we say that we've come to follow, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' life and ministry in the Bible is characterized as one of service, using this word diakonia in various forms over and over again. And it's the same diakonia, the same ministry that he passes on to his disciples to carry on after his death and resurrection. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be diakonized, but to diakonize and give his life as a ransom for many. Luke twenty two twenty seven says, I am among you as one who diaconizes. Upon washing his disciples' feet, he began to interpret the significance of that event for them. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. So if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And if you look at all of Jesus' life and teaching, we see that in the new kingdom of God that he brings, he flips the authority structures on their head where those who are the leaders, those who are the most significant in the community are those who are the most servant-minded and servant leadership becomes the model of life in the church. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your deacon. The greatest among you must become like the youngest, he said, and the leader like one who diaconizes. And the last one we'll look at for today is whoever wishes to be great among you must be your deacon. And so we begin to see that in Acts 1 through 7, this same word that is used to refer to the apostles' ministry of the word is is the same thing that describes the ministry of the deacons who are serving the food distribution to widows. Both equally, equally represent this call to a lifestyle of service in ministry in our following of Jesus. Ministry or service is not the unique calling of a few people, but is a description of the lifestyle of those who follow Jesus, who was God's servant to us. Ironically, one of the table servers, one of the commentaries I read said, Stephen turns out to be even a more gifted preacher than many of the apostles themselves. <laughs> But even as a gifted speaker, he was called first and foremost to serve tables and to help widows in need. So what did they do? Well, they not only came up with a new idea of how to do it, but then they came up with a plan. It says they gathered people together and they said, pick seven men from among you who are full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn responsibility over to them to begin to do the ministry. And so they elected Uh, these men and asked them to step forward and they laid hands on them and prayed for them and then turned them loose to be responsible to go do ministry. They identified the qualities and qualifications necessary to put somebody in charge of other people and to to plan ministry in God's name. And, And the two qualities they said were essentially what? Spiritual maturity, being somebody who is connected with God and full of God's spirit, but also has 
wisdom in life, somebody who is intellectually and emotionally mature and in a conflicted situation where we had these uh, widows who were feeling disgruntled and left out, maybe there was some sensitivity needed to know that we need some people who can go in and step into a tough situation and try and work towards unity and help people to understand that we can love each other even in the midst of our differences and our challenges. One commentator said that the qualifications said that they must be spiritually gifted, able administrators, qualified to wisely handle tensions in human relationships. Their lives are dedicated to God's spirit so that they are spiritually sensitive and able to make good judgments. As the church grew and ministry expanded, this model is what we see becoming integrated into the life of the community. It wasn't just an office of uh, a few people got to be deacons and nobody else did. They took responsibility to marshal the forces and to get everybody involved in ministry. It wasn't so much a program of the church as an organization as it was an intentional lifestyle that they planned to intentionally live out together in many and varied ways, diaconia or service or ministry came to be regarded as part of the very nature of what it meant to be a Christ follower. See, Christian ministry is not understood in the Bible as a particular job that some people do and other people don't. It's not a title or an office, but it's a lifestyle of those who follow Jesus Christ. And what was the result, the passage says? Transformed lives, right? Right? They chose specific people, they prayed for them, they laid hands on them, they went and did ministry, and then it says the word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, it was as the community with shared responsibility began to live out the gospel and to reimagine how the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ transformed their lives to give them a new sense of value and meaning and how they could work for the gospel that led to a whole new experience of what it meant to be a part of community and people thronged to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, here at Faith Covenant Church, we also have a deacon ministry, and we've had a deacon ministry for a long time, and we're beginning to work on reimagining how our deacon ministry is an important and a vital part of our identity as a faith community. We have examples of servant leaders in our midst who have very faithfully and quietly been serving the needs of people behind the scenes for many years, and great examples of this Christian lifestyle of diaconia that we're all called to live out as servants of Jesus Christ. I wanted to invite Wayne and Marianne Caps to join me. Wayne and Marianne, would you guys come up and just have a, a short conversation together about your experience with uh, deacon ministries? As part of telling our story of faith together, we have a microphone for you here. We can just sit together and have a little fireside chat. Thank you for being with us. How did you guys get sucked into this deacon ministry thing? Oh, is it on? Probably not. If you hold the button on the bottom until the green light starts. Or is the battery dead? With technology today, we might have to have to shout. Not. There you go. Um, it simply came down to the fact that we were asked. Uh, somewhere on some nominating committee, someone had the idea that maybe Wayne and Marianne would be willing to be deacons and maybe had some skills to be deacons. And so they asked us to pray about it, and we did. 
and we felt that God was calling us to into this ministry. So that's how we got involved. And uh, as you jumped in and got your feet wet, what kinds of things are were the deacons doing, and did you guys get involved in helping to to do on behalf of those who are in need? So my turn. <laughs> Good morning. Um, well, we. We served the first time. There's a three-year term. And then you can re-up for another three, if you're brave. (laughs) And we did. And then we took a break because that's what you needed to do. And then we signed up for another three years. And then we quit. (laughs) At at least we thought we quit. You retired. (laughs) Yes, we're retired. Um, Deacons work behind the scenes. And they're not comfortable being up in front. (laughs) Why did I say yes? (laughs) I I think the reason is because everybody needs a chance to help other people. And and that's what we're called to do, is to help. And so that's the reason we came up here. Not because we're anything great, but because we want to help. Mm. Is it still working? Mm -hmm. I look out at your faces... And I know many of you have been deacons. And then as I look at your faces, I know that many of you have received the gift of help through deacons. And many of you have stepped up and said, I can help with that because the organization is in place. Just tell me what to do. So deacons serve in many different ways, and I'm going to read some of the ways that you might be able to help. And if the Lord is leading you to say, excuse me, (laughs) pull out that Connect card, and would you please write that particular ministry down and give it to Wayne or myself or out in the narthex at the Welcome Center because the offering has already been taken. Um, and listen carefully, and I want you to listen as a former deacon. I want you to listen as a former person helping with deacons. And most of all, listen to see, have you been helped and served by these ministries? Cheat sheet. <laughs> There are three areas in which deacons serve. Support ministries, encouragement ministries, and in and outreach ministries. Deacons put before you each month the communion. It's easy. There are people who have a system, and if you would like to come before early on that communion Sunday and help with that. It's a way you can serve. We have a kitchen. You have a kitchen in your house. We have a kitchen here. It's called Nobody's Kitchen and Everybody's Kitchen. And if you haven't seen the kitchen, please walk through and say, hey, I'd (laughs) like to work in here with you. It's a mission and a way you can serve. There are people in our congregation who have gathered together under the direction of a deacon to send you cards 
And if you received a birthday card, a get well card, we're thinking about you card, you have been served. And if that's something you would like to do to help send out cards to people in the congregation, that could be your act of service. Devotionals, upper room provided for you. Transportation. You know someone that is wanting a doctor appointment, but they can't make it because there's no one to take them? Do you have a car that they can get into? <laughs> like a van? Like a van. <laughs> Not. <laughs> <laughs> there are such simple ways to serve if you just knew about them. Well, and Wayne has been instrumentally involved with the transportation, and uh, together you've also been very key in the Lots of Helping Hands ministry. Tell us a little bit about Lots of Helping Hands and how that has been a really significant part of getting the needs identified and helping to take skills and, and bridge those the need with the, those who can serve. Wouldn't it be interesting if when Pastor Kurt says, just share with each other and say good morning. And someone shook your hand and they said, how are you? How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I have a leak in my kitchen sink and it's driving me crazy. <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> two, two days before Thanksgiving, my oven quit. Oh, I'm sorry. We all have life issues. Life happens. And if you're in that puddle that says, I want to ask for help, or that other puddle Oh, I'm not going to ask for help, but I need some help. Or that puddle where somebody says, I know somebody in the congregation that needs this help. And maybe you're in the puddle that says, I can fix anything. Do you realize we have people in the congregation who can fix anything? <laughs> Isn't that great? And the Lots of Helping Hands ministry is an opportunity for you to share any of the skills that you have that somebody might have a need for, as well as finding out what the needs are that people right. have, and then we connect them and, and allow you guys to help one another without, you don't necessarily have to be a deacon on the deacon team to serve as a deacon in our church, to serve the needs right. of those around us. Tell us one thing about how God has shaped your spiritual lives as a result of your service through the deacons. Well, <clears throat> I think it's really given me... A I can only speak for myself, but it's given me a, a more awareness of the needs that people have. And certainly through lots of helping hands, we've seen how we can help other people. And, you know, I, th I think that's just, God has just opened up my heart that way. And even though we're not deacons right now, we still do the ministry of deacons. I mean, <laughs> the deacons have a saying, once a deacon, always a deacon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's true because the people who are deacons feel God's calling that's on them to help other people. And uh, certainly, you know, if there's any of you who feel that calling, the, the deacons can use any help, I'm sure. I think the problem when you talk about implementation 
is that we have puddles of those people who want to ask for help. Mm -hmm. We have people who can fix anything. We can have people like us who don't fix anything. But we are willing to learn. And we have people in the congregation who have a heart for bringing you along as they fix things for people and teach you at the same time. So, so how do we connect those puddles? What's the bridge? Well, five, four or five years ago, Lots of Helping Hands website was one of the last, one of the first things available online. And they were um, finally sent texts to us through our phone to, to tell us how to help. Now there are so many different ways to do things. So we're ready to look at this, this way of serving and how do we go ahead and make changes. Yeah. And if you're interested in organization and making changes and, and you feel a calling, tell us. <laughs> you know, if you're willing to help, if you have a passion for something, do you know in this church we have people who have a passion for pressure washing? <laughs> for cleaning kitchens? I don't understand that one. But well, there are so yeah. many ways yeah. to help. And, and that's really what we're, we're trying to highlight today is that you don't have to serve on the deacon team to be a deacon. It is a part of the lifestyle that our deacons are modeling for us about how we love and serve one another and that there's a role and there's a ministry, a service, a diaconate for you with whatever God has gifted you with. And so if we're all willing to allow God to raise our awareness of the needs around us, to respond in uh, obedience to his call in our lives, then we too can live out this calling that God has given us to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You guys appreciate Mary, Wayne and Marianne? Thank you, guys. In a few minutes, we're going to be able to come to Holy Communion together. And communion is, again, a way that reminds us that we follow a Messiah who came to be a servant to us. His broken body and his shed blood is a symbol and a reminder that to follow in his footsteps is to live life the way he lived. And so I invite all of us to prayerfully this morning as we come to communion, as we continue to worship, to allow the Holy Spirit to prompt us to, to open our hearts again to see how God may be calling each of us individually and us together as a faith community to meet the needs of those around us and to be a reflection of his love, not only for one another, but for the community that he's called us to serve as a mission outpost on this mission field where he's planted us in the 21st century. Would you pray with me?